So we will jump into 2 Peter and um, we're going to get a lot of ground to cover in the first couple of verses here. So I'm going to read the text for us and then we'll go ahead and get started. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1. Peter starts by introducing himself. Simon Peter, Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In any given discipline, whether it be professional discipline, work, athletics, and go on down the line, any different discipline, category, job, oftentimes the most fundamental skills are the most important skills. The most fundamental skills are the most important skills. I think, I'm not a huge baseball fan. I like baseball, but I, I don't really follow any team. But baseball season started this past week, right? I guess you guys aren't either. I think baseball season started this past week. And what I know about baseball players is that no matter how long they've been playing for, no matter how good they are at their sport, and if you're in the big leagues, presumably you're a world-class baseball player, no matter how good you are, you're still on Monday or Tuesday getting in the batting cage and hitting fastball after fastball after fastball after fastball. Well, that's the same thing that kids do in Little League. It's one of the most fundamental aspects of the sport, and yet even the best, most expert, elite players still practice hitting fastballs. You can go down the line. Many professions and areas of discipline are like that. Sometimes the most fundamental skills are the most important. And we must oftentimes be reminded of the fundamental skills, revisit those skills and master those skills. And to be honest, it's similar, if not the same, with our faith. It's similar with our faith. Peter is going to spend a lot of time reminding us about some of the fundamentals of our faith throughout the course of this letter. He writes to us and he writes three chapters and he reminds us multiple times. He says to us multiple times, these things are reminders. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 13 of chapter 1. I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15 of chapter 1. I'll make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to recall these things. Chapter 3, verse 1. I'm stirring you up by your sincere mind. I'm stirring up your mind, rather. By way of reminder, over and over and over again, Peter tells us, the people he's writing to, and by virtue of the Holy Spirit inspiring his writing, he's telling us, he's reminding us of the fundamental components of what we believe as Christians. And here's his aim in this letter. Chapter 3, you can turn there, one page over. Chapter 3, verse 17. This is Peter's aim, ultimately. He says this in 3.17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, all that I've written, take care that you are not carried away with the errors of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is Peter's aim in this letter. That you and I would take care, be watchful over our own souls 
of spiritual deception and not be carried away by the error of lawless people. Peter's going to spend like half the book, this book, 2 Peter, devoted to warning us against false teaching and false teachers. It's a really big deal for him. There were false teachers in his day. There are false teachers in our day. And you know what? They're all over the place in his day and in our day. This is nothing new. They've always been here. And Jude says that they've even crept into the church and that was happening in the first century. You better believe it's happening now because there's nothing new under the sun. These are still the same things that are happening. Satan has the same tactics and ploys and strategy. It just looks different. And so Peter says to his people and to us, I want you to be stable and secure and not tossed to and fro and not deceived and not in sin and not in lawlessness. I want you to be able to stand up and face spiritual deception. And the way he does this is by reminding us of the fundamentals, who we are in Christ, what Jesus has done for us, how we ought to respond to him as Christians, who God is, those sorts of things. We must be familiar not only with the ornate trimmings of doctrine, as good as and fine as those things are, but we must be intimately familiar with the granite foundation of all that we believe. Not just so we can have some theological musings and conversations, not that that's bad, but so we can have an actual solid foundation to stand on and be stable on. So here's where we're going today. We're just going to cover the first two verses. If you look at your outline, you're going to see two points on there that covers verses one to four. We're not going to do that. I realize that there's just too much content to fit into one sermon, so we're going to split that up. We're going to cover the first two verses because there's enough there for us to feast on and, and be fed by and, and, uh, and, and enjoy just for one short sermon. So we're going to cover verses one and two, and here's where we're going. Since this is on your outline, I'm going to tell you up front so you can write it down. Our faith is not achieved, but received. That's the first point for us. Our faith is not achieved, but received. Our faith is not achieved, but received. Number two, the source of our faith is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The source of our faith is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And number three, the fuel of our faith is knowing God. The fuel of our faith is knowing God. That's where we're headed today. Basic, simple, fundamental, and super important. Let's get to know Peter a bit first. Verse 1, this is what Peter says. Again, he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter says he's a servant and an apostle. You'll recall, for those of you who have read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll recall that Jesus, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, he chose 12 men to follow him, who he would teach, who he would train, who he would pour into, who they would live together, and they would be in community, and, and they witnessed his whole ministry. Peter was one of those 12 men. But in addition, Peter was in the inner circle of leaders within that 12. If you look at lists throughout the Bible, particularly in the Gospels, uh, when the disciples who followed Jesus are listed together, you'll notice three names that often occur at the beginning of the list, Peter, James, and John. That indicates that they were his kind of senior leaders within the 12. And in addition, Peter is always listed first. So not only is he in the inner circle of leaders, but he really was Jesus's lead guy. Peter lived with Jesus for years. He witnessed Jesus, the entirety of Jesus's ministry. He loved Jesus. 
They were friends. They had a close, intimate relationship. Peter messed up multiple times, but Jesus forgave him and restored him and renewed him. And at this point, Peter is one of the most authoritative, spiritually authoritative men on earth. If you look at, in addition, after his resurrection and ascension, Jesus commissioned Peter to build his church and the whole first half of the book of Acts is filled with sermons that are preached primarily by Peter. So Peter led the charge in building the church and planting churches and training men and women and establishing what Jesus told him to establish. And Peter's one of the most spiritually authoritative men on earth at this point in time. He says he's an apostle. That's one who is called, commissioned, and sent by Jesus. Peter and the other apostles have unique spiritual authority. He has unique authority to preach. He has authority to lead. He has authority to write books of the Bible. The apostles are the ones who wrote the New Testament. Again, Peter is one of the most spiritually authoritative men on earth. And what he writes to us in these three chapters is not mere opinion or suggestion. Sometimes we approach the Bible and when we find things we don't like, we kind of find ways around it. When, we, when, when the Bible says, you know, don't do something that we're doing, if we really want to keep doing that, then we'll find a reason why it's okay if we do it. Well, that's treating the Bible like it's some sort of book of opinions that we can take or leave, but it's not. What Peter writes to us is not opinion or suggestion, but the authoritative words of God. The authoritative words of God. That's what scripture is. It's God's revelation of himself. And Peter will say in verse 3 that in scripture, God has given us everything needed for life and godliness. That's where it's all found in scripture. And it's all authoritative and binding on our lives for our good, for the good of God's people, the good of God's church. That we might know Jesus better, love him more fully and follow him more faithfully. That's why Peter writes to us. Notice the other word he uses to identify himself. He calls himself an apostle, but he also calls himself a servant. And a more accurate rendering would be slave. He says not only is he an apostle, but he's also a slave. He's not a forced slave, but a willing slave. He's not a grudging slave, but a happy slave because Jesus is the greatest master. Peter's a happy slave because Jesus is the greatest master. One of the first things that we glean from the apostle Peter is that he has a right understanding of his own identity in Jesus. He starts off by describing who he is, and you'll notice he says, I'm an apostle, I have great privilege and great standing. This is a great gift and calling from God, but I'm also a slave. There's one point in Jesus' ministry where his disciples were following him and they were having a conversation, and they were talking about authority. And Jesus said, you know, there's some people in the world that kind of have authority and they use their authority to be demeaning to people and they, they lord it over people and they kind of think of themselves as higher or better than everybody else. And that's what some people use authority to do. And that's how some people view authority. He says, but you guys are different. 
You guys are different. You're part of a different kingdom. You're part of a different world. You're part of a different family. And instead of being on top, you need to be the servant of all. That, that's how you truly use authority. Instead of ordering other people around, you actually need to be in the trenches with them. Instead of looking down on people, you need to realize that you come from the exact same place. That's a right use of authority. And Peter here took that lesson to heart. He says he's an apostle, but he's also a slave, a happy slave of Jesus Christ. Peter knows that he does not own his own life. Jesus does. Peter knows that he's been bought at a price. And if we are in Christ, then so have we. We do not have ultimate autonomy and control and authority over our own body, over our own lives, over our own resources. But if we're honest, we usually act like we do. We usually act like we do. And from the very outset, Peter says, no, 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 as God's people, we're actually slaves. We're actually slaves. And you know what? That's a good thing because Jesus is a good master. To function rightly in any other role or relationship in life, we must first understand our identity in Jesus. We will not truly be able to function properly in any other role in life until we function properly before God. This is the first thing we learn from Peter as he identifies himself. We need to understand who God is, who we are in light of God, who we are apart from God, what Jesus has done in us, his lordship in our lives. Peter does understand this and he's going to help us understand this. These fundamental components of our faith. And here's the first thing for us to consider. Our faith, again, is not achieved, but received. Our faith is not achieved, but received. Second Peter chapter one, verse one. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to Christians who by faith have entered into relationship with God. That's right standing with God. Now for Christians, this is where it all starts. This is where our spiritual life begins. When through faith, we enter into relationship with God. When God created man, he created man in right relationship with himself. So Faith in God, trust in God, reliance on God, all of those things were natural to man. Can you imagine? All of those things were natural to man. Man was created with those qualities intrinsic in himself. There was no disconnect between God and man. And in Genesis 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they broke faith with God. They broke trust in God. They broke reliance on God. They moved all of that from God to themselves. And as a result, their fellowship with God and relationship with God was severed and broken. As a result, though they were created sinless, they became sinful. And as a result, you and I are now not born in right relationship with God, but disconnected from God. This is really, really important. We need to have a right understanding of human nature for us to understand the solution to our problem, we need to actually understand the problem. The problem is we are disconnected from God. We're at enmity against God. The fleshly mind is hostile towards God, Scripture says. 
And anyone with kids who's at least honest about this understands this nature part of what I'm saying, of what the Bible teaches. Anyone with kids knows that children are not naturally God-centered, but me-centered. Children are not naturally peaceful and harmonious in their behavior, but children practice anarchy and destruction regularly. We don't have to teach our kids to misbehave. We have to work hard, on the other hand, to teach them to behave rightly. I'm not saying kids never behave rightly by nature. What I am saying is that the bad stuff, you really don't have to teach. You just let a kid do their thing, and you know what they're going to do eventually? Something bad. Something selfish. Something destructive. We have to work really hard at the opposite. Yet the real change comes not by behavior modification, but heart transformation. That's what we need. We don't just need better behavior, though better behavior is, is good, but it doesn't change a person. Better behavior does not change a person. Heart transformation changes the person. And though we're disconnected from God, the good news is that God doesn't leave us wallowing in our sin. He actually reaches down to rescue us. He actually reaches down to rescue us. He provides the means for us to be connected back to him, and that's through faith. Peter says that you've obtained a faith. He uses this word obtained. What that word means is to receive by lot. To receive by lot. It doesn't have anything to do with gambling. It has everything to do with the fact that this is something that we did not earn or achieve. If you receive something by lot, you had absolutely no part in receiving that thing. And Peter says, we've obtained our faith. We've received it by lot. We've received it without any contribution or merit or accomplishment on our part. Listen, faith is given as a gift. Our relationship with God is entered as a gift. It is not achieved, but received. Our faith is not achieved. It is received. Now, this is really hard for us because almost every relationship in our life is transactional. We give, we do, we accomplish, we earn something, and then we receive something in return. Okay, that's a transaction. We think about this in our places of employment. We perform and we work and we strive and we meet our goals and then we receive a paycheck or a bonus or affirmation or a plaque or whatever. We do something and then we receive something in return. You go shopping and you see something you like. You pick out that thing, and in exchange, you give money. If you're picking out a school, you contact the school, you pay them lots of money, and supposedly in return, you're supposed to receive an education. These are all transactions. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying that that's how we operate. Almost all of our relationships, almost all, almost all of our activities when it comes to relating to others are transactional. And the problem is then we come to God. And you know what we do? We bring our transactional baggage and posture to God. How many of you have skipped a morning of Bible reading or prayer or devotion, silence and solitude, time with the Lord, and then you had a pretty bad day? 
And then later on that day, after it's been bad for a while, you think to yourself, God, man, if I would have done my prayer and my Bible reading, things would be better. I would have had a better day. That got me off on a bad start. I should have done that. Think about that. How we're functioning when we think that way towards God is this. If I would have done my part, God would have then in return done his. You realize that that's a completely transactional way of viewing God. I'm not saying, look, we we need to read our Bibles. We're going to get into that later. We need to be nourished in God's word. We should make a regular practice of getting in God's word in the morning, spending time in prayer. I'm not saying feel free to neglect those things. And the Christian would never think that way because their heart has been changed. What I am saying is sometimes we approach God as if he's some sort of transactional landlord. And it's like, okay, if I do my part, then God God will bless me. That's not the gospel. That's transaction, not grace. Peter reminds us that our standing with God, our relationship with God, our membership in his family, his church, which is the family of God, is not based on something we do or give or contribute or accomplish. It's not based on how faithful we are, but how faithful he is. Our standing with God is not based on our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved, through faith. Okay, through faith. Listen. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. It's like you couldn't be more redundant. For clarity's sake. He says over and over again, grace, faith, not your doing. Gift, not your works. Don't boast. Okay, our faith is not achieved, but it is received. It is a gift of God. And here's the source of our faith. Here's the source of our faith. Second part of verse one. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, we've received it, not achieved it. Now, here's what he says. By, that's source, by or through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the source of our faith. By the way, if anybody ever says that (coughs) the Bible never says that Jesus is God, it's not true on so many different levels, but it says it right here. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not that the Bible has to say Jesus is God for it to be true. It says it in different ways. Nonetheless, here it is. Here it is. I was talking to someone this week and they were saying, I really want to get my Christology down so I can understand that, that Jesus is God and like be able to explain that to people. Here's a great verse to study. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, that He and Him and the righteousness He gives is the source of, of our faith. Again, you and I are fundamentally flawed and unrighteous, and Jesus comes as the righteous one. We are unrighteous. Jesus is fully righteous. He comes as the God-man, and he lives a righteous life in our place. We've lived lives of unrighteousness. Jesus comes and lives a life of perfect righteousness. He condescends to a fallen world as a man, to live a righteous life as a man that we could not live. And his righteousness is then the source and object of our faith. And when we look to Jesus, here's one of the things that it actually means to be a Christian. Sometimes we think to ourselves, 
or we say, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means my sins are forgiven. Absolutely true. He, but, he, but more specifically, what actually is happening when we look to Jesus in repentance and faith, we're actually receiving his righteousness. We're receiving his righteousness. So when God the Father looks at you and I, he actually sees in us the, the very righteousness of his own son. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that is why we have access to God because we've been united to Jesus. That is why our sin is forgiven because we've received his righteousness and he's taken on himself at the cross our sin and our shame and our guilt. And so even now when we sin as we're being progressed and sanctified and conformed into his image, even though that's a process, objectively, positionally, God looks at us and sees perfect righteousness. He is the object and source of our faith. And so here's the deal. When we look to Jesus in faith, it's, well, I just have a quote for you. I'm going to read from an author. I really appreciated this quote. And he says this, it's not the strength of your faith but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Meaning, it's not how, how sincere we are or how powerful our commitment is that saves us. Obviously, we have to be sincere. And God knows mockery and faking and insincerity when he sees it, for sure. We have to be sincere. But it's not how passionate or how strong our commitment is, but how strong our Savior is. That's the source of our salvation and faith. Number three, the fuel of our faith. And lastly, the fuel of our faith. Verse two, 1 Peter one, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. True grace and true peace are the benefits and result of faith. Okay, right relationship with God. We receive true grace. We receive true peace. Those are two of the benefits we receive. We need to know we're not only saved by grace, we also live by grace. Sometimes we think that grace is just for forgiveness. It's also for favor. Grace isn't just for forgiveness. It's also for favor. Grace is God's love in our life, his care, his protection, in Peter's previous book, 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter says, cast all of your cares and anxieties on God because he cares for you. That's God's grace in our life, his care in our life. And peace is more than just an absence of conflict or hostility. It's more than just a, some sort of psychological state or mindfulness. Peace instead is full harmony. Biblical peace is full harmony. Prosperity, spiritual prosperity, well-being. The Hebrews word, the Hebrews had their word for peace, which you've probably heard. It was shalom, shalom. And they would wish each other shalom. They'd greet each other and depart from each other by saying shalom, peace. Not just, I hope you get some mindful meditation, but I hope you have full spiritual prosperity and well-being and connection with God. Well, you may, sorry about that. Mike can't handle all this truth. (laughs) We all good? Okay. Um, Where was I? You might be here thinking, you know, I hear you talking about peace and defining peace. I don't have that. 
I mean, I don't have that oftentimes, you might say. I, I'm not experiencing peace. I'm not experiencing spiritual prosperity or well-being, but I'm a Christian. I love God. Why am I not experiencing peace? And I would just suggest this. If you're lacking peace, you may have lost sight of grace. If you're lacking peace, you may have lost sight of grace. If you're lacking an experience of peace, you may have lost sight or awareness of grace. Our experience of peace is directly connected to our awareness of grace. And the way that we grow in awareness, the way that we grow in understanding, the way that we grow in grace is by growing in the knowledge of God. That is how we grow in grace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, look, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is how grace and peace are multiplied, by growing in the knowledge of God. That's how our faith is multiplied, by growing in the knowledge of God. Grace and peace abound when believers know more of God. And friends, our faith abounds when we know more of God. Not necessarily when we learn more facts about God, but when we know more of God himself. Not when we hear more moral commands or things that we must do or things we must add on to our plate to please God, but when we know more of God because in Christ, God's already pleased. I told you Peter's aim is to equip us. It's to equip you and I to face and stand fast against and to overcome spiritual deception. That is his goal in this letter. And to do so, he reminds us of who we are in Jesus. He reminds us that we've received faith as a gift. He reminds us we've been brought into the family of God by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He reminds us that our standing in Jesus is secure and ever stable. And now, as his people, the way that we press forward and stand firm in life is by growing in the knowledge of God. That is the fuel of our faith. Again, chapter 3. He, he ends his letter by exhorting us to this. Grow, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the last thing Peter ever pens to the church. If you're one of the most spiritually authoritative men on earth, you've walked with Jesus, you've lived with Jesus, you're about to go get martyred for your faith, you say, what are the last things that you would want us to know? What are the last instructions? What's the last exhortation that you would have us know? Here it is in verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the, the most important thing that Peter wants us to know. This is not just intellectual, but the whole person. The head, heart, and hands are never disconnected in Scripture. I was going to get into these, but we don't have time to. Here's what Peter's saying. Love Jesus, growing in the knowledge of God involves growing towards God with our whole person, with our mind. We need to grow in our intellectual faith, not as an intellectual exercise or academic exercise, I should say, but because we need to know what Scripture says, what, what God has revealed in Scripture. Listen, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. We must know our Bibles 
in order to know and grow in the knowledge of God. We must love God with our heart and our affections, prayer, communing with God, worshiping God, meditating on the scriptures. We must grow in our actions and our service. God has called us as his people to serve him and be on mission with him. And we know God in a way that we would not otherwise know him when we're on mission with him. Look, if your experience historically is you just kind of come and go to church and take what you please and never invest and never commit and just kind of your attendance is really spotty and you don't really serve, listen, you will not know God in the same way that, you ought, that God intends for you to know him. You just won't. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. That's just what scripture teaches us. God calls us as his people, as his family to serve him and to be on mission with him, to expand his kingdom in the world. And the last thing, not the only thing I have to say on this, but the last thing, and some I've been thinking on this week, in terms of growing in the knowledge of God, I would say this, invest in spiritual friendships. Invest in spiritual friendships. I was listening to someone talk this week, and they said something like, when, we're, when we have spiritual friendships that are significant, that are substantial, where we talk about God, we point each other to Jesus, we help each other get through issues in life, we exhort one another, and we, we, we have hard conversations when necessary. We have encouraging conversations, oftentimes. Okay, what happens there, one of the things that happens is we're being shown and taught different aspects of God that we would not have had a good sight on. We would not have understood had it not been for other people helping us understand different sides and components and the nature of God. We just know God better when we are being pointed to God by friends who our lives are invested in each other. Lastly, friends, I just want to speak to you for a moment who don't know God. Not only are you not growing in your relationship with God, but you've never met him. Or maybe you would say something like, I'm not in the place that I should be with God. I, I, I've been backsliding for a while or, you know, I got saved as a young person and it's been a long time since I've ever really cared. Wherever you're at on that spectrum, I just want to say this. I want you to hear this. Faith is not achieved. It is received. Listen, there is nothing that you can bring to the table that will merit or earn or achieve God's favor in your life. There is nothing that you can do or accomplish or change or make up for where God will look at you and say, now that they've done this act, now I'm happy with them. That made things better. Faith is received as a gift of grace. Here's what that means. You may not know God or you may be far from God, but God is seeking to know you. That is what it means. God has sought and pursued you to such a degree that God actually came to earth and he became like you. All your weaknesses, all your ailments, all your problems, yet with none of the sin. That's Jesus. And as we said, Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live. And he went to the cross then and he willingly went to the cross and he died the death that we deserve to die, paying the penalty for our sins. And then he rose in victory. And when we look to Jesus in faith, he takes our sin and he kills it at the cross 
and then he gives us his righteousness. Our sin is imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us and God looks at us now with pleasure and delight and joy because now we look like his son. We've been renewed spiritually and redeemed and resurrected spiritually. And now God works on us for the rest of our lives. But positionally, man, we've received faith as a gift and we're now righteous before God. Our hearts have been changed by looking to Jesus in faith. So I pray this is helpful for us. I pray as we journey through 2 Peter together that we'll be exhorted by hearing the fundamental components of our faith. I pray that we, as a result, will be able to know God better, love him more fully, and follow him and obey him more faithfully. Amen. I'll invite the worship team back up. We'll finish in one song. I invite you to hang around for as long as you wish. Father God, we thank you for giving us faith as a gift. We are so glad as we consider the fact, Lord, that there is nothing that we, that we have to do or that we can do to ever earn or accomplish or achieve your favor or your blessing, but you give it to us as a free gift of grace. And I pray for the brothers and sisters here who know you and love you, that we would receive that, that we would rest in that, that we would take hope and comfort in that, and that we would press forward in life joyfully because of that. I pray that it would kill apathy in our hearts I pray that it would kill spiritual laziness in our souls. I pray that we would pursue you with a fervent desire to know you better. I pray for those who do not know you here, Lord. I pray that they would come to know you. I pray that they would repent of sin by your grace and that they would receive your righteousness as a free gift. We trust you to continue to do that work among us in your good name, amen.